Welcome to the CSLP Podcast, where we're helping to educate, inform, and assist financial professionals and student loan borrowers to make smarter repayment decisions. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the five listeners that routinely uh, tune in to Heather and I chat about uh, student loan nerdy stuff. Are we um, up to Heather, five welcome now? welcome back. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think five. I think we finally crossed the threshold. Woo! I knew I was going to be famous one day. I just didn't know how long it would take, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well... <laughs> So, so uh, since you know, we've gotten on a couple of uh, podcasts here, we've had some other CSLP on, but um, it's been a couple of months since you and I got together just to chat about all the current events and what's going on in the world of student loans. And here we are uh, at time of recording in mid-July, um, and we have a lot to talk about with how the CARES Act has actually uh, panned out for us. Yeah, it's not working completely smoothly. I don't think this comes as a big shock to us. You know, I mean, I, it, it's not easy to change your systems overnight and to make adjustments. Um, and so, of course, loan servicers have not uh, successfully implemented um, the CARES Act according to its own terms. Yeah, without, without a doubt. I mean, there are a number of topics that we discussed last time that we had some questions about as Ed hasn't really provided much guidance yet. And we were sort of questioning and thinking through some of the, the processes that would normally happen in a rule negotiation process when you have a, a, a major reform bill that, that's affecting student loan borrowers and servicers. Um, but you know, what seems to be most concerning out of this um, is that some of the language in the bill is not being followed at all. So uh, I, I know something that you're really concerned about is, is the fact that the Department of Education's uh, contractors are continuing to garnish wages from those uh, most um, under or most stressed borrowers. Yeah, which is, you know, completely against the letter of the law, which uh, was that wages would not be garnished, um, but money is still being taken from people's paychecks, people that need it desperately. Um, and what what Ed is saying about it is that, you know, the, the, the employers themselves are receiving notification from the Department of Education telling them to stop wage garnishment. Um, and that if the Department of Education receives funds from garnishment from the employers who have garnished wages, that they will refund those to the borrowers and then contact the employer again. Um, but, you know, there's also uh, lawsuits in the works to say, listen, you need to stop this now. Right. And, and it's, it's sort of disheartening that, you know, you know, like you said, it's tough to administer these sort of things, uh, but people that still need that income, especially in times when there's such a recession going on, that they're having their income garnished. And of course, you know, employers struggle with uh, wage garnishment as it is, because it's not something they're regularly accustomed to doing. Um, and then you all of a sudden want them to stop. People are working from home at, at these different employers. HR staffs are at home and they're trying to, to figure this out. So so it's understandable and, and um, you know, 
probably should have easily been foreseen that this was this was going to happen. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, the other part of that for defaulted borrowers um, is that is that they were not supposed to be seizing people's tax refunds as uh, payment toward defaulted federal student loans. Um, and that's supposed to be effect between March 13th and September 30th, 2020. Uh but that there is, um, you know, there have been refunds seized, including people's um, earned income tax credits, which is one of the the few effective anti-poverty tools that is implemented by the federal government. And so that is an issue. Uh, luckily, advocates and organizations like, for example, the National Consumer Law Center are fighting on behalf of borrowers to get some of that corrected. Right. And we're also seeing problems um, for public service uh, loan forgiveness uh, borrowers. So those borrowers are working towards public service loan forgiveness. Of course, the CARES Act had conditions in it that this payment suspension period um, would count towards forgiveness um, for all borrowers, whether it be those working for public service loan forgiveness, those that may be working towards teacher loan forgiveness, um, or the the long-term forgiveness from the income-driven repayment plans. Although there seems to be some gumming up of mucking of the working uh, components for Fed loans there as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So what borrowers have been finding is that if they file an employment certification form documenting public service employment during this period of payment suspension, that they're receiving uh, replies, you know, automated replies from Fed loan servicing indicating that those months do not count towards the 120 required payments as they should um, because because a $0 amount was paid and the loans are in a forbearance status because of the loan servicer's own uh, uh, process that they have to use in order to not keep withdrawing payments. So um, what their phone centers are telling borrowers who follow up is that they are aware of the problem and are going to be manually correcting them in, you know, batches. Um, But uh, one of the borrowers that I've been working with who's experiencing the situation was told, you know, if, if it's not fixed by September, if we haven't, you know, gotten back to you and said, okay, you're right, these payments count towards forgiveness, that they uh, should follow up then. Um, I guess Fed loans, you know, position being that if payments are not required on these loans anyway, um, that borrowers can wait, you know, to get their forgiveness properly processed. Um, on the other hand, you know, the law is pretty clear that uh, when forgiveness has not yet been approved, payments are still required, although they can later be refunded. Uh, and so my concern is, and, and FedLoan essentially concedes this, that, you know, if if the end of September rolls around and the CARES Act is not extended, if people will ha- either have to con- uh, resume making payments, even if they should have already earned forgiveness during the CARES Act period, um, and then request a uh, refund of those payments if it takes you know some period of time for FedLoan to get that figured out. Right. And you know the, the real problem is the administration of the public service loan forgiveness program with fed loans has, is an automated process that they use their computer systems to really track those payments based upon the records that they have. And the cares act has forced fed loans and other servicers to use a term called administrative forbearance, 
um, which generally forbearance periods of time don't count towards public service loan forgiveness. So when their automated systems are going through, they're not crediting this. Um, and to think that Fed loans is going to go back through this manually uh, is, is quite a daunting task when you figure the, the millions of borrowers that are enrolled in this program and you look at how they've totally botched um, public service loan forgiveness to date, it doesn't give you much, um, much, much warm and fuzzy feelings about their ability to manually handle this process. No, and especially not to manually correct it for all the borrowers who are negatively affected. So uh, I think it's likely that the people who will see the correction first to the error will be those who demand it and who are the you know squeaky wheel, writing letters, making phone calls. Um, but I have no hope that... Um, a loan servicer is going to effectively go through and, and screen for everyone who could be harmed by this and, and let them know after the fact, like, oh, hey, guess what? We we failed to count all the payments we should have. And so, you know, we owe you some money. Like, that's not how it is. It's going to be on the borrowers to, to identify the error and call attention to it on their own behalf. Right. And how many borrowers are going to even recognize this isn't happening. You, you look at the average borrower with all that's going on in the world today, they don't really have the bandwidth to sit there and think about whether or not they did or did not get a few months credited towards public service loan forgiveness. And they may not even realize that they didn't get this credit for you know a year, two years down the road, whenever they do their next employment certification with Fed loans or whoever the servicer is at that time. Um, and, and that's an issue, too, because the borrowers might nece not necessarily even realize that they didn't get credit for this period that they should have. And without being that squeaky wheel, um, they're likely going to just uh, assume the number that's presented to them from Fed loans is accurate because we, we've we talked many times. Borrowers are not accustomed and people are not accustomed to questioning their loan holders with regards to records. It's not as if. Um, you know, your mortgage company all of a sudden just misplaces six months worth of payments that you've made or payment history. Uh, it just doesn't happen anywhere else except for student loans. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you say that, Jance, because I, you know, my conversations with borrowers and uh, have, it, they're always evolving over the years as I learn more and more. And I, you know, fairly recently have a new way of talking about loan servicers and how borrowers have to sort of watch their accounts. Um, and I wish I had thought of this, you know, much earlier, but what I say now is that it's, it's not like your bank account, you know, it's not like your checking account where you log in and you see your digital history of, you know, all of your point of sale coffee purchases and everything else. And it's always right. Like it's never wrong. It's, it's always right. They get the amounts right down to the penny all the time. And um, it's not like that at all with uh, student loan servicing. It is much more uh, fraught with error. Um, and there's sometimes, you know, a lot of money at stake. Uh, and so I think that people, you know, should be advised on their you know, when they get their loans and when they're starting to repay their loans that like, hey, you you need to keep an eye on the company that is administering this loan because they um, make mistakes that are not in your favor. Without a doubt. And you would you would like to think because the, the government is behind this, 
that uh, it would be more forgiving and have more accountability. But uh, that's certainly certainly not the case. I mean, I, I even take some issue with um, the, the CARES Act, how it was written when we were discussing it uh, back in March with regards to counting this payment suspension period towards forgiveness. And then how the Department of Education has interpreted that. Um, and and you know, we've talked about this offline, but the way the Department of Education has, has provided guidance to the loan servicers and the borrowers, uh, indicating that for public service loan forgiveness, this period counts for forgiveness only if a borrower uh, had direct loans and was on a qualifying repayment plan prior to the suspension of payments and then continue to work full time. Um, and that causes some issues for borrowers that maybe changed jobs and started working at public, in a public service position during this payment suspension, or maybe a borrower that graduated um, you know, in May and started a public service job where they should be able to start uh, garnishing credit towards public service loan forgiveness. But the way the Department of Education has um, crafted their language doesn't necessarily fit with the language that I believe was in, in the CARES Act and the intent of the law uh, initially. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, it can be, you know, argued, but I think what you're pointing out is an example of, of something that I see regularly, which is when the department is interpreting statutory language, they have a tendency to do so as narrowly as possible. So they, you know, Congress will confer some benefits and um, the Department of Ed will construe those narrowly so as to limit their application. Um, whereas, you know, that's not the only way to interpret statutory language. If you if you know, if, if one chose to, you could you could interpret it um, differently. And I just find it uh, interesting that the that the government nearly always takes the position of interpreting things in a way that maximizes the collection of revenue from borrowers. Uh, um, and they, and they, they justify that as, you know, being a good custodian of taxpayer dollars. Um, but I think, you know, a, an overlooked point is that, you know, borrowers are taxpayers too. Um, and, you know, they, they also um, have an interest in being treated fairly uh, and there's, you know, it's to me, it's not abundantly clear that serving the interests of borrowers is not the same as serving the interests of, you know, our society more generally. Yeah, you know, it, it, I just think in general, the the way Ed and the services are applying the rules, as we you've said many times, it's just not always viewed in a most favorable light for the borrowers. And, and certainly that advice is often provided to the advisor or to the to borrowers as well from you know financial advisors that necessarily doesn't always allow them to personally interpret the rules in a way that that's that's most favorable to the borrower meaning oftentimes people feel as though they're supposed to interpret the rules that's least favorable to them and it's no wonder because that seems to be the way the government uh interprets the rules when applying them yeah and it's a very kind of a punitive attitude and a uh, with the, you know, it's it seems like there's this kind of um, belief under under all of these interpretations that, you know, somehow that borrowers are trying to take advantage or ought to, you know, have to be, uh, you know, carefully policed in order to um, prevent them from, you know, defrauding the system. And I remember it's been a while back now, and I think it was on one of the podcasts. We had a whole funny conversation about like what 
what would a student loan borrower have to do to defraud the government? You know, like it's just it's not if you if you want to do crime, doing it by borrowing money from the federal government is really not the not the best way or not a good way at all. It's a lot easier I, to steal money from the from the government by being a, a, a for profit school than it is by being a, a student who, you know, borrows a couple thousand dollars and, you know, maybe somehow manages to figure out the rules of forgiveness and, and you know, pay less interest than they would have otherwise. You know, I mean that's that's not a way to get rich quick, I'll tell you that. Right. Well and, and as we're talking about, you know, just how the government sort of letting borrowers down here and Ed's letting borrowers down with regards to the CARES Act. Um, we've talked over the last couple of weeks about uh, the repayment estimator at studentloans.gov and the issue with, with that. So what we've seen is, is with the CARES Act, there was a suspension of interest uh, on all direct loans. And uh, initially, um, the, what was being reported from the lenders to the National Student Loan Data Systems, which is the, the government sort of warehouse of data of each borrower's student loans, the schools report to this uh, system as well. Um, and what what we now see is that the interest rates have been effectively updated with the loan servicers to 0% per the CARES Act that was passed in March. Uh, but now the data that's being provided to this national database shows zero interest rates on all of these loans. And it's causing sort of an unintended consequence with regards to the Department of Education's repayment estimator. So for those of you that don't know, uh, the Department of Education provides a tool uh, that allows borrowers to um, model and compare their various repayment options for choosing a repayment plan. Uh, but this um, tool uh, works off of, and the engine behind it is the NSLDS data that's reported from the loan servicers. So a major problem that we're seeing right now is that student loan borrowers are engaging with this tool, sometimes by by force because they have to for their exit counseling or by choice because they're trying to determine what payments could be in various options that they have. Uh, and the tool is flat out broken because it is assuming there will never be interest charged on these loans at any point in their repayment term. And it's and it's creating an outcome that's very misleading for borrowers. Have you seen or heard of any clients that have engaged with this thing and and, and just seen how broken it is? Yeah, I mean, I have I have found several opportunities to have to warn people. You know, when they're using the tool, thinking that they're getting correct information, and then I have to go back and say, you know, actually, that's far from your actual circumstance because. Um, interest does, in fact, uh, start to accrue again uh, here at the end of September, unless um, Congress takes any additional action. And, you know, as as you know, Dance, I mean, the cost of borrowing is primarily interest. You know, you borrow money and, and that's the principal amount that you borrow. You have to repay your principal plus all the interest that accrues at your interest rate over time. And so, uh, it makes a huge difference um, if you forget to include any interest. Like that's the whole concept of debt is like you don't it's not free. You don't get to spend someone else's money without paying for it. And what you pay is interest. So, um, yeah, that's a that's a big problem. And, you know, Jance, they've they've changed the name of the tool. It's no longer called the repayment estimator. It's now called the loan simulator. 
uh, for what it's right. worth. Um, so, you know, and what I, what I like about this break is that, you know, to me, it shows you a better way to finance education. You know, like if, wouldn't it be nice if people could borrow um, at zero interest and pay their uh, principal back and, and not uh, and not worry about paying additional costs. But uh, that's not the system that we have. Right. That, that would be that would be ideal. We might see a little more borrowing from that standpoint uh, from people, but that, that would be an ideal situation for borrowers. That's for sure. Um, you know, I, I, I think with with the repayment simulator, one of the challenges with this or the loan simulator, one of the challenges with this um, is as I spoke to a number of colleges at graduation, all of the students are required to use this repayment simulator, or repayment estimator, whatever you want to call it, as part of their um, exit counseling. So they are mandated to engage with something that is erroneously showing them what payments and costs would be. For instance, um, a borrower uh, that has maybe you know $100,000 in student loans and they're a graduate borrower that has higher interest rates, um, they may use this, this loan simulator and see a 25-year repayment term and choose that payment amount during this period of time where no payments are going to be due because of the CARES Act. And in reality, when they actually assume that payment in October, that payment could be two times what they actually thought they were signing up for because the payment just assumed a 25-year principal payment, not principal plus the accrued interest over that period of time. And anybody that uh, has dealt with debt and, and has paid you know, a mortgage off over 25 or 30 years, they realize that the first couple of years of payments, almost their entire payment is going to interest. Um, so it's, it's a really flawed system. And now that the CARES Act is is you know halfway through heading towards termination, unless it's ex extended further, uh, the Department of Education is starting to reach out to borrowers and say, okay, warning, you're you're heading back into repayment here in a few months. Come use this broken calculator to make sure that you're on a repayment plan that that's appropriate for you, which is only going to lead to borrowers having payments that are underestimated or choosing payments uh, plans that that may end up causing them to, to go into delinquency or default later. Well, you're right. And if it if the broken tool encourages people to choose uh, extended repayment terms or long terms of repayment for consolidation loans, those faulty payment estimates may urge people into those repayment plans when they in fact would be much better off in the income driven plans. So you're right on the, they may end up having payments that are not affordable that will cause the problems going forward. And they may also inadvertently delay their progress toward forgiveness. And, you know, it's because of the availability of income driven payment and the long-term taxable forgiveness, uh, very few borrowers, especially, you know, recent graduates who are making decisions about, uh, a repayment plan to begin with. Very few of borrowers are better off in a you know twenty five or thirty year term than they are in an income driven plan, um, because those those repayment plans um, just don't do anybody any favors in those circumstances. Right, and and the way the repayment estimator loan simulator is working now, um, it, it is 
devaluing the income-driven repayment plans because it's not showing the interest being charged and how much debt would be forgiven and potentially accumulated interest could be forgiven. And it's overvaluing longer repayment terms, which is exactly the opposite advice that you would be giving to a borrower uh, if you were providing the advice, you you would either be saying, hey, we're going to pursue forgiveness and, and we're going to utilize a public service loan forgiveness or an income driven repayment plan, or we're going to try to aggressively pay these things off as quickly as possible. Uh, but the way the simulator is broken, um, it, it, both of those options are devalued compared to assuming longer repayment terms, which would be the last thing any uh, advisor would tell their, their client would say, hey, you know, pay the most amount of interest possible and pay this off over the longest period of time. No, nobody would give that advice. Right. And and not only have they not fixed this problem, but they've not even flagged it for users. You know, I mean, it, it's I, I can understand that it takes some time and money and energy that perhaps might be differently spent if you're, you know, a government agency during a pandemic. Uh to fix this tool temporarily, but it, it takes uh, very little time to just put a you know text box up on the website that says, hey, beware, this tool is is assuming zero interest for the life of the loan, and that's not true. So take it with a grain of salt. That's the least they could do. And um, shout out to the Veterinary Information Network Foundation or VIN Foundation for having already incorporated the CARES Act um, functionality into its uh, loan repayment simulator tool, which is in every way superior to the Department of Education one. Right. And and ultimately, when you look at it, uh, you know, the Department of Education still holds true to this idea, hey, you know, borrowers, you don't need to pay for advice. Um, you, know, you can navigate this on your own. And then here are the tools we give you that are broken and servicers that we give you you know, connect you with to get information that have historically been poor at best at providing advice to loan bar to the borrowers. So it's um it's it's a impossible process to navigate and it's why having these trained professionals, these CSLP out here that can really understand what's going on with people's loans and give them appropriate advice is so important. Well, that's right, Jance. And in addition to that, it's also the environment and the context that has allowed for the growth of these um, fraud-based criminal companies that are just in the process of ripping off borrowers, um, you know, and then the government's sort of v- very uh, uh, ham-handed response is to say, well, you don't need to pay anybody for student loan advice. Okay, yeah, on the one hand, you don't need to pay anybody for student loan advice because you can get, you know, crappy, unreliable advice from your loan servicer for free at any day or, you know, totally wrong pr- loan projections from the government website any day for free. Um, but obviously that's not enough for borrowers, which is um, one of the reasons why these, you know, charlatans are popping up, you know, one after the other. And I know you always like to refer to it as like whack-a-mole, you know, like the, the you know, agencies that are charged with protecting consumers will like shut down one of those companies and another one pops right back up in its place. Um, which is, you know, a large part of the reason why um, you and I have spent so much um, time trying to prepare a curriculum to to train um, real licensed financial advisors to be able to provide, you know, comprehensive, reliable advice for borrowers. Right. So, so as this CARES Act uh, 
wraps up here over the next few months, it, we know it's been uh, so far administered poorly with a lot of problems. Um, how do we expect, what do we expect to have happen here over the next couple of months? Do you see or foresee the likelihood that some of this payment suspension and some of these benefits will be extended longer? Um, and if not, um, how, do you, how do you see this, this going as it transitions back to borrowers having to repay their loans, income-driven repayment plans having to be recertified? How, how do you foresee this, this, uh, this working out? Well, I have a very hard time having any confidence predicting what um, Congress and and even and even the executive branch lately will do. So I, I don't know that I have a strong feeling one way or another about whether the payment suspension or zero payments will be extended. I think that there's a decent likelihood that it, that if another stimulus bill is passed or when another stimulus bill is passed, that it will include some student loan relief and that this payment suspension and zero interest is, you know, is a kind of a good baseline. Like my hope would be that they would do, they would extend these provisions and do a lot more like um, expand it to non-federally held student loans um, and, you know, potentially even get some loan forgiveness that I don't hold my breath for because I I can't imagine that a McConnell led Senate is going to do anything like that. Um, but, you know, I, I think that whether the CARES Act expires without being extended or not, when they when they do go back to sort of normal interest rates and, and payments, I think there's going to be a lot of um, problems getting back on track, mainly because the servicers have delayed processing or even delayed, you know, requiring the receipt of income-driven uh, recertifications. They have not properly process the employment certifications, as we talked about earlier. Um, and so there's going to be um, a big need to sort of correct those things. And and sadly, you know, the we're not going in the right direction in terms of um, virus cases right now either. So it's hard to see how the, um, the good people who work for these companies will be in a position to do so, um, you know, in the office anytime soon. So I think it's going to be a real struggle. And I know you, you know this since we've been working on this together, but I, you know, I think the best thing we can do for borrowers and what we can recommend to borrowers is to watch their accounts closely and then you know, start documenting what, what is right and fair and do that in writing so that they can establish, you know, hey, these months should be counting towards public service loan forgiveness. And so, you know, count them and just to, you know, really be vigilant at, um, you know, demanding that that the system enforce uh, the rights that people are entitled to. Yeah, and one of my biggest concerns with the end of this CARES Act is, of course, the record keeping and everything that we talked about with public service loan forgiveness. But for those borrowers on the income-driven repayment plans, which uh, by last account, two-thirds of all the loans the total amount of debt in repayment was in an income-driven repayment plan. So the vast majority of debt outstanding is, is in these plans. Um, I, I'm concerned about this recertification period that the Department of Education has said has been extended out six months. So if your recertification fell during this uh, CARES Act suspension, uh, it's now six months further into the future. Well, the servicers, again, have automated processes, and these dates are in this national student loan data systems, and they have not been updated 
to six months out. And I'm not quite sure how they're going to do this. It's probably going to be another manual process for these servicers. And they're just not equipped to handle the volume that they have on a manual process to go through and figure that out. So I am, I am uh, very hesitant about that. I'm very hesitant about people who may have missed their certification prior to um, the CARES Act and, and have had this payment suspension now resuming payments that would be higher and potentially defaulting. I think there's going to be a number of issues. And I also think the loan services are going to be overwhelmed with borrower concerns, calls, questions as we get towards the end of September and certainly into October when payments start showing up again. Uh, you know, are the payments showing up the way they should? Can borrowers afford them? What their options are going to be? There's going to be an overwhelming burden on the loan servicers that's going to hit real hard when these payments come back. Yep. So we got a few more minutes here before we're going to wrap up. Let's talk about some other uh, in the news uh, topics. Um, loan servicers, uh, we, we're, we're, we've been bashing them pretty good. Um, and the Department of Education uh, this past week or two came out with uh, the new contract that they're putting out for loan servicing. And they effectively have fired the four uh, largest loan servicers, Fed Loans, Nelnet, Navient, Great Lakes, are all supposedly out and they're being replaced uh, by five new loan servicers. Um, and uh, what do we think about this? Are, are there concerns for borrowers? What do we think about the transition? Uh, do we think it's even gonna happen? Um, and, and if so, when might we see this transaction action happen? Well, what we know is that the existing contracts last through the end of the year. Um, or through December. I'm not sure if it's the, the end of December, but through December. Um, and that there are, uh, there's the possibility for two successive six month extensions. I can't imagine that they won't have to use at least one of those extensions with um, everything that's going on in, in the world. You know, it's just not the time to be doing a huge switch when you can't even handle, you know, what's going on regularly or the CARES Act um, in addition to that. So I would be surprised if we don't see at least at least one, if not both of those delays. Um, and then I think that it is... Um, unlikely that this decision wouldn't be revisited by a new administration if there is one um, starting next year. So um, I'm not sure that all experts would, would agree with me on this, uh, but my kind of instinct right now is, is that this, this may not actually happen in exactly the way that it seems like it will. Um, I mean, I know uh, you know, there, there are contracts signed, so there will, there will be, you know, there definitely will be changes. Um, but I, I have to imagine that some of the companies that are going to be losing huge market share will be, you know, filing some lawsuits. And so I imagine that there will be at least some delay and argument and potentially, uh, renegotiation, uh, around this. Yeah. And I am, echo your concerns with regards to uh, the changing in the time frame of changing this. You know, historically, as loans have moved from different servicers, there's been a uh, poor track record of records of records being maintained, 
at the new servicer from the old servicer, payment issues, payment you know, borrowers not realizing payments should be going to a new place, having to establish new accounts at, at new servicers. It has not been uh, smooth for borrowers in the past. Um, and, and I just think that this it couldn't happen at a worse time, right? We have the CARES Act ending, people's payments are gonna start to kick back in in October. Um, and, and we also, as we talked about with the recertification process, people who were supposed to recertify have it extended out six months, but what date is actually on their file? And then all of a sudden you pick the loans up and move the loans to a new company. I just, I just think it's ripe for problems everywhere uh, with regards to borrowers not knowing what their payments are, borrowers not being able to contact the the individuals how long does it take for records to be able to move from from one uh company to another i mean if we think back uh heather we've been in this business for a while and we think back to when you know the banks wells fargo and uh, bank of america used to be holding and servicing federal student loans and when under the old federal family education loan program and Remember, under the, the Obama administration, there was, a, there was a period of time where borrowers could do that special direct consolidation, mm -hmm. and those loans were supposed to maintain their payment history. Um, I, I have had a number of clients that have done that, and the payment history is not maintained uh, at all. When the records transferred to Fed loans, those, the previous records were, were all but lost. Um, and I'm very concerned that that could be the case if and when loan records change again from Navient to, to Mohila or wherever else. Yeah, I think that's a that's a very reasonable um, concern, especially because um, a lot of the, you know, kind of transfer of records it, it involves these kind of old legacy computer systems. And, you know, the the existing loan servicing companies that what are their nine servicers and they use like four different technology platforms between the nine of them or something like that. And the, the goal for this, and they're calling this new servicing, it's called next gen, which is very modern sounding, isn't it? And, and sci-fi. Yeah. Um, but what's supposed to actually happen is that we're supposed to be able to do all our transactions and all our, and all our review of our own records and, you know, enrollment and plans and everything else through the central website, student aid Dot gov and these four new companies or five new companies that are getting the contracts will be like powering all that behind the scenes or whatever. So it's supposed to look like one servicer from the perspective of borrowers. Um, I think that's going to be, you know, uh, problematic. So, so Jance, what would you suggest that borrowers do in order to protect themselves in case, um, this, these changes do start to happen as early as uh, December. Yeah, you know, borrowers, as we've discussed previously uh, today, borrowers should make sure that they are continuously keeping and maintaining their own records. Um, but it would not be a bad idea to download payment histories and, and account history that you can from your servicer. Many of the servicers have the ability to download at least some of that history uh, immediately. Uh, I wouldn't e even think it's a bad idea uh, and certainly wouldn't be harmful to the borrower to, in writing, request the entire account history of their loans, particularly 
uh, if they're on an income-driven repayment plan or, or uh, hoping to have public service loan forgiveness to ensure that they have a copy of those records. Uh, so when these rec records transfer, they have their own copy to, 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 to follow up on with their new loan servicer. Um, you know, for those borrowers that are pursuing public service loan forgiveness, you know, they should already have copies of the records of qualifying payments that have been credited to their accounts and, and may have already requested a, a detailed report there. Uh, but for borrowers that are not pursuing public service loan forgiveness, that's something that, that's not readily available um, and would be something they would need to request. So I think that it would be uh, well worth the time for borrowers that are concerned or, or hoping to have forgiveness to ensure that they have a copy of their account records just in case it gets lost in the transaction. That is so clever. Um, well, you know, Jance, I, I have enjoyed working with you now for a number of years. And you know who else is working together? Is Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders have something they're calling the Unity Task Force. Um, and the Biden-Sanders Unity Task Force has published some... Uh, uh, what are we going to call them now? Proposals, I guess, for uh, what could happen um, in a future timeline with a uh, President Biden. And as informed by Senator Sanders' um, policy positions. And, and uh, one of the things that they put out is a kind of a new income-driven plan. Um, what can you tell us about that, Jance? Yeah, so their proposal is a new income driven repayment plan that would be automatically enrolled in by borrowers. So borrowers, if they were trying to pay their loans off in a more aggressive term, would have to change out of that income driven repayment plan into um, a standard or traditional repayment plan. Uh, and then they're also looking at reducing the required payment of, of income down to 5%, um, having a similar forgiveness period of, of 20 years. Uh, and, and they want uh, to make this uh, program no payment for anyone, any family earning under $25,000 a year. Uh, and, you know, this is very similar to the income-driven repayment plans that exist today, uh, except for they're looking at maybe scaling back that percentage of, of income that's required to be paid. Um, and, of course, um, it, it appears as though the $25,000 is an increase. There's not a lot of details put out there. The current income-driven repayment plans are are tied to a poverty line based upon state and family size of, of the borrower. Um, but uh, this just gave a number. So I, I'm guessing that it would still be a similar fashion where they would be looking at uh, state and some sort of uh, poverty line number. It looks as though maybe they're going two times poverty line instead of one and a half times poverty line. Um, but it, it, that, those details aren't really flushed out. But it does look like an enhancement from a borrower standpoint of um, reduced payments as a percentage of income and, and the same shorter 20-year um, forgiveness for all borrowers. Right, and reduce payments, particularly for people at lower earning, at the end of the lower earning. Like, I think that the way that their ideas are, are fleshed out so far, it allows also for the possibility, though, of, um, a, you know, a higher percentage of income being paid for people that are um, high income as opposed to being uh, low income. 
Right. And, and, you know, that's sort of the way the income driven repayment plans are established now, even though the payment as a percentage of income is the same. The poverty line deduction means more to borrowers that are on the lower income than the higher income scale. Uh, you know, in the courses that we teach, we, we talk about that, about the value of the poverty line deduction and the value of the percentage of payment that the various income driven repayment plans have and which ones per provides more value. Right. Um, and that one of, I was just going to add one other thing on that um, chance is that, you know, it'll, it'll depend a lot also on whether the, any payment cap is retained. So it, you know, it's one thing to pay a percentage of income uh, as it is now you pay a percentage of income up until your payment gets to be the same amount as it would have been under a standard 10 year plan. Um, which under most of the income-driven plans, with the exception of revised pay-as-you-earn, you're then capped um, at that amount. Uh, and so that is advantageous to borrowers that have higher debt and higher income, as opposed to those who have um, lower debt burdens and lower incomes. Right. And, and along the lines of the income-driven repayment plan, uh, you know, public service loan forgiveness has been something that has worked hand-in-hand hand with the income-driven repayment plans as it's really a prerequisite and requirement for forgiveness. Um, but uh, there were some proposals in this plan that I think, you know, from what I've read in, in different news articles, sort of uh, got, got missed by a lot of uh, the pundits out there. Um, that technically the public service loan forgiveness proposal under this plan is actually more restrictive uh, than what's currently available because what, what they're proposing as the public service loan forgiveness amount is $10,000 a year for five years for a total amount of $50,000 that can be forgiven for working in the public sector. Now, there are some benefits to this proposal, meaning someone that only spends you know one or two or three years in the public sector may get a, a portion of that. 50,000 cap forgiven, um, where, whereas currently they have to work for the entire 10 years. Um, but there's also this, this maximum amount of five years and 10 grand per year at 50,000, which limits the value somewhat uh, versus what's currently available. Yeah, it puts a uh, less of a premium on retention of public service workers and, and more on uh, recruitment, I would say. Right. And this is something that when uh, Joe Biden was vice president uh, under the Obama administration, they had looked to limit public service loan forgiveness at that point in time to fifty seven thousand uh, dollars as a maximum amount. So it, it's uh, it's something that, you know, this the, the public service loan forgiveness uh, benefit in general is something that I feel has kind of been on the chopping block from both sides uh, of the aisle in different ways. Um, one looking to cap it, and, and you know the Trump administration previously was looking to eliminate it completely. Um, but there are also a number of other components of this that are very beneficial. Do you want to talk about any of those? Yeah, well, some of the things that are fantastic and that, in my view, are like no-brainers is that they're suggesting uh, an end to the garnishment of Social Security, which, in my view, is um, long overdue. Um, it's entirely unconscionable that the government would be seizing uh, Social Security from the elderly uh, after so long. There should be uh, some limit to, to how long collections can continue and, ha and in what way. Uh, they would also allow for um, a resumption of the you know, fair treatment of student loans under the bankruptcy code um, rather than the current state of affairs, which makes student loans 
nearly impossible to discharge in bankruptcy. Um, and then, you know, one thing that we've certainly been wanting and talking about for a long time is to allow um, long-term forgiveness of student loans to be exempt from taxation as income, uh, which would be huge for, um, you know, s- certain borrowers who have, you know, persistently low incomes as compared to their debt balances over time. Right. And, you know, uh, the, some of these things have some interesting components to them or, 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 or tangents. You know, if, if um, the current bankruptcy provisions that are provided to student loans were eliminated, um, I think you would have some serious pressure on the private loan industry and the private refinance industry. Um, you know, the, the reason why those loans are at the lower rates is because they don't come with the, the same consumer protections that federal loans have. But at the same time, they, they get the benefit of these bankruptcy provisions. Um, if the bankruptcy provisions were not there and these were unsecured debts, uh, you would be hard pressed to find a private refinance loan that that's less than the interest rate that you would see for credit cards. Um, so if you know if something like that went into into effect, I think that would be a real industry changer from the private loan side, which which I think would would probably be good for most borrowers. Um, well, I think also, right. I, certainly, yes, go ahead. I was going to say certainly in terms of of um, helping prevent uh, people from borrowing more than they can afford to repay. Um, I think that that is is useful. But I think what we would have to do is make sure that we have more access to either grants, scholarships, or additional federal borrowing for people at the undergraduate level, because the federal borrowing limits at the undergraduate level are increasingly inadequate to meet the cost of higher education. And so my my concern would be that potentially an unintended consequence, if you make private loans less profitable for um, lenders or less less secure, so that they have they're engaged in more of a risk that they're going to charge have to charge um, higher and higher interest rates. So you're going to end up having students and families burdened with um, really expensive loans, uh, and that's not good. Right, and and again, you know, like a lot of these proposals, you know, this is sort of a like a, it's like a budgetary, the president's budget proposal, which is basically a wish list, right? So, you know, it, it, it was some there could be some serious unintended consequences if portions of this plan are implemented and other portions are left out, which would likely be the case, right? If you if you remove bankruptcy provisions but didn't implement some of their other proposals, like um, you know, free college for uh, undergraduate uh, four-year and two-year institutions that are public institutions for everyone that makes under 125,000. If those don't go hand in hand, um, now you've you like like you've identified you end up in a position where the borrowing limits aren't enough. People are forced into the private market, and in doing so, the interest rates are now higher than they otherwise would have been because of the bankruptcy provisions. Or, um, quite frankly, the the private lenders wouldn't take on that risk. They wouldn't make the loan at any interest rate because there's a good chance that someone could file for bankruptcy afterwards. Uh, so, you know, there, there, you know, there are some other provisions in this. It's a pretty long document, um, but, but they, they do have to kind of work hand in hand. Um, a few other, a few other, uh, you know, bullet points that were in there is they wanted to forgive all undergraduate debt for all students that were earning under $125,000. And I think that sort of lines up with the idea that they anticipate 
having free college for any family that's earning under $125,000. And they also wanted to do a, a forgiveness um, up to $10,000 for all borrowers just due to the, the, the strains that COVID has put on, on the entire um, system here. Um, the, the one point that I do want to talk about, Heather, is the, the sort of the long-term forgiveness. And we talk about this as we teach to our uh, accountants and, and financial advisors through CSLP course that, you know, for many of those, those individuals uh, that may experience that taxation from the long-term forgiveness, um, there are ways within the tax code where that long-term forgiveness, though uh, could be included income, likely would not be depending upon the financial circumstances of that borrow or when that debt is forgiven. So uh, I think it would be make things more clear. And I think in some of the treasury rulings um, that the Department of Treasury has already put out there, they have indicated that um, they, they foresee collecting on the forgiven debt from um, from the long-term forgiveness of income during repayments as being something that's probably going to be difficult for the IRS to collect on anyway. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think the insolvency provisions of the tax code are the big one that come to mind where um, you know, certain borrowers will be able to eliminate or reduce the uh, amount of uh, forgiveness that is taxed as income to them, even under existing law. Um, but certainly, you know, it would it it creates uh, uh, difficulties for the the Internal Revenue Service if you treat it as it's presently structured as this like taxable forgiveness. But then you have to apply these exceptions uh, under the tax code. It would be simpler just to say like, hey, if the government's going to forgive debt uh, with the the hand of the Department of Education, they shouldn't then try to claw some back uh, with the hand of the Internal Revenue Service. Right, right. Without a doubt. I mean, the, the worst case scenario, I don't think the government wants to be in a position where they are forgiving someone's student loans. And then they're saying, well, you have equity in your home, therefore you're not insolvent. And we're going to for, you know, we're going to force you to sell your home, or we're going to put you in a position where we're going to put a lien on your home or garnishment of future income, only because they own a home that doesn't make much sense at all from a policy standpoint, and a pragmatic standpoint. True that. So, well, um, it's been a, a pleasure chatting again. There's been so much going on in the news. I'm sure we'll get some time to debrief on all of this uh, today. I feel like this was a, an ex, uh, really interesting. Those five people that are listening are just going to absolutely love this today. Oh, my God. They're going to they're gonna love it. If Well, the one person who's still listening, like five people were listening at the beginning. One person is still listening now. And they're, they're going to send you an email, I think, maybe, Jance. <laughs> Right, right, right. And they're going to tell two other people. So next time there'll be eight people that tune in when we start. It's kind of like COVID-19. You know, every one person is going to pass it along to another two. Um, no, I don't mean to right. joke. I don't, I don't mean to joke about it. It's actually not very funny at all. Um, but Jan's always uh, great talking to you. And, um, you know, thanks for continuing to work on behalf of student loan borrowers. I know you're making a positive difference. You have been making a positive difference for a long time. I'm just trying to follow in your footsteps, Heather. Booyah. All right, homie. I'll talk to you soon. 